Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Only 20 seconds or so from a truly brilliant week for Manchester United in which rivals had lost. They had scored 12 goals in two games and continued a title charge. But those final seconds count as this club knows better than most. And Everton, for the second time in the game on Saturday evening, came from behind to take a point away from Old Trafford and leaving Oregon Solskjaer's side having had a good week with a magnificent middle but a gutting end. So today on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast, we're talking a 9-0 victory against Southampton, a 3-3 draw against Everton. Defensive concerns, attacking praise, and as always, you'll get your youth loan and women's roundup in the middle of the show as James Garner excels at new club Nottingham Forest. United women are beaten by Reading and a slim-framed 17-year-old scores an under-23s hat-trick in a 10-goal thriller. That's in the middle of the show. But first, Jack, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reaction to the late equaliser conceded at Old Trafford on Saturday night was we should not even be considered as title chasers. Um, we're recording this just having seen Manchester City dispatch of Liverpool in some uh, eventually comfortable style and uh, given the mistakes that we made, given the mistakes that Liverpool made, it's very much City's title to lose as we've kind of been thinking for the last few weeks. It's absolutely City's title to lose at this point. This was a week a big week for Manchester United and one that was so close to going really well, actually. We played 180 minutes of football across the last four or five days. And for about 165 of them, we were very good. But those other 15 have really let us down. And especially having watched City just dismantle Liverpool, equal the record for the longest winning streak in English football history. I mean, it's almost impossible to look past them at this point. They are the title favourites. And I think any hopes that we had of staying in touch with them have really rested on this re- on this week. You know, two games, two winnable games against Southampton and Everton that we should have taken six points from. And City having on paper probably their 
outside maybe of coming to Old Trafford, their most difficult game of the season at Anfield. This was a week where we were hoping that we could claw back some of some of that advantage that Seed had built up. Yeah. And in the end, we've ended up two points further behind than we were at the start of it. So yeah. I think it's fair to say that we still are in the title race, but we're very much on the outside. Yeah. I mean, we are the, the closest challenger right now. And it's, it's, it's a mixed week, isn't it? Of a, a week of mixed emotions because we knew we had to, I think four points was the minimum out of this week. That's what we got. We kind yeah. of needed six points to really lay down a marker. And, and because of the emphatic nature of the 9-0, which we'll come on to, because I mean, it was magnificent. Um, but because I think that that the emphatic nature of that has kind of sent a message rather than two victories. Had we had two victories, which we were seconds away from having, as well as the nine nil, then I mean a huge statement. And and yeah, 180 minutes of football. And as you say, for 165 of them, we didn't just play well. Some of our best football of the season against Southampton clinical ruthlessness uh, brilliant mentality and against Everton some of our best play on the ball that I think we've seen this season the problem was was at the back but in terms of attacking play and the speed of the passing the tempo of the game the movement um, the involvement of the fullbacks Mason Greenwood was improving um, and Cavani's movement again Pogba looked fantastic for the first 38 minutes before he went off we we looked good. We played really well. And that was, I think that was why it was so frustrating at the end because we knew this was a game that well, we actually deserved to win. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it won't get much attention because of how it ended, but the Everton performance was actually very, very good. It really was. We had a 10 moment, 10 minutes of, of madness at the start of the second half where we didn't get going mm. and one just ridiculous goal to concede right at the end. But outside of that, we actually played really well against Everton. I mean, the, the the chance that Rashford missed in the second half where he, he got one-on-one with Olsen and cut back and uh, shot with his left foot and he just splayed it wide. Yeah. That, that play was unbelievable. Everton were pressing us mm-hmm. high up the pitch. We knocked it around defence between Maguire, De Gea and Shaw. And when we sprung out of that, the the speed at which we went forward, the ball then coming across to Fernandez, the slide will pass into the channels of Rashford. I mean, it, that play summed up how brilliantly we were we were playing at that point. Some of the football that we were putting on display was honestly mesmerising. Uh, both of our first goals were incredible. One, a great team goal, Rashford brilliant cross into the second. Cavani in the second. I mean, yeah, what what more Outrageous. can you say about Bruno Fernandes? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. Some some lovely play, and that second goal was just really was just just outrageous, audacious, and just. So so good. Um, it, it's quite. It was quite beautiful. I think to think that the three players, in sort of modern United history, that have scored goals very similar to each other have been Fernandez, Rooney, and Cantona. Yeah, and that they've all sort of played those at the, at the same end of the ground. That yeah, sort of yeah, chipping over the uh, goalkeeper into the far left corner. And they're all really are talisman of their talismanic eras. figures of of their eras. Yeah, yeah. Um, say it in the same way. I guess. <laughs> it's a strange one because I think we want to talk about um, some weaknesses in our game management in, in David De Gea, in our centre-backs in a few different areas, but I don't want to get onto that before kind of giving the the context of the week, because although it, it, it had a gutting yeah. end, the, the week as a whole, it, 
it isn't a terrible week. The problem is that these are the kind of points you cannot drop if you want to win the title. If you want to get into the top four, which was our pre-season aim, I guess, um, then you can afford to do this a couple of times. Uh, and we, but, we've talked in the last couple of weeks that despite the fact that results have been good, we should look at the bigger picture, which is that performances haven't been great. And I think it's only fair that when the result isn't what we want, but the performance is great, we give it the same treatment that actually yeah. this week, the signs, despite the fact that we haven't got the result we wanted against Everson, actually on the whole are, yeah. are very good. Yeah, right. Let's not waffle. We'll, we'll move on to Southampton. We'll move on to some more good, good things, but let's get the negatives out of the way. Game management. Um, it, it, it's the Everton result. A result of poor game management, or just the fact that we have a weak spine to our team, because th- there's two things here, isn't there? There's the fact that we look like we panic at set pieces late in the game. Um, a set pieces we've seen it all throughout the season. We, we're not very good at defending them. Um, I think back to Bednarek scoring against us in the Southampton away game, and uh, plenty of other times. But th- and then later on, you see the twins of a tackle, the De Gea free kick, which he just boots up field. The fact we're gifting away possession. And we almost conceded from a set piece at Southampton too at home, and it was yeah. only chalked off through VAR. Yeah. So there's that that kind of panic. But then there's the idea that is is the spine of the team just not good enough because there's great bits throughout. Rashford is a fantastic player. Pop is a fantastic player. But if you think what the actual spine of the team is, it's De Gea, Maguire, Lindelof, and Fred and it, it's got mistakes in it and it's got too many weaknesses in it and and those players don't carry each other and they can't carry each other because they don't necessarily complement each other um, but I think probably the bigger point from this game is that we, we're not good enough at controlling games at seeing games out at managing the game and that was evident at the end in the 96th minute but also at the start of the second half where we we're pushing our fullbacks forward, carrying on pushing our fullbacks forward, even when we conceded one, and we just needed to calm it down a bit. Yeah, so we don't have we don't have the in between. I feel like we we sort of oscillate between these two modes of operating, where one is sort of all out, not all out attack, but our sort of default, which is quite aggressive football, playing with our fullbacks pushed very high up the pitch, as we did for the vast majority of the first half against Everton, and it works. And at nil nil. That's absolutely fair enough. But we sort of oscillate between that or completely falling back into our shell, completely sitting back, dropping deep, inviting pressure. We didn't do the latter quite as much as we normally do when we're protecting a lead, to be fair, against Everton. Yeah. But we need we need a, a way of playing, a sort of mode of operation that is somewhere in between those two extremes because you can't only be able to play in those two ways. There, there needs to be... A, a third way that you can play where you're still controlling the game and you're still dominating the ball, dictating the tempo, but you're able to slow the game down to not necessarily be throwing men forward. But that that doesn't mean that you're not in control. It doesn't mean that you just sit back and defend. The I, I feel like I use this example a lot, but I think it's the sort of perfect way to sum this up, that it was the one thing that Van Hals United teams were always so great at because we would do this for pretty much the entire game where even (laughs) when we weren't in the lead, we would just keep the ball and sort of aimlessly not really go anywhere. So we'd keep the ball, we'd slow the the tempo of the game down, which is obviously really frustrating at at that point because we would do that nil-nil. But when we did ever get a lead, we were brilliant at protecting them because that is exactly how you protect the lead. At this level, 
if you if you invite a team to to just uh, give you wave after wave of attack for 10 15 minutes at the end of the game you're inevitably going to concede unless you get lucky i don't think we did that to be fair against everton i thought we did okay for parts of it but there were just moments where we're just lacking i don't know whether it's leadership whether it's experience whether it is just that we're but I don't know if it can be ex- don't experience because this isn't an inexperienced team. There's there's some young players, um, but it's not an inexperienced team. You think about the young players in the side. And especially at the back, it's not a young team. Yeah, but even the young players in the side, Greenwood, okay, is an inexperienced player. Wan-Bissaka, okay, inexperienced. But Rashford's been at the top for five years. Um, I mean, there just aren't that many young players, actually. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Shaw is yeah. he's not young anymore. Maguire, Lindelof, they, these are not young players. Popper, Fred, McTominay, these are all people with four or five years or more and often much more experience at the top level. So I don't think it is that. And maybe it is leadership. But the interesting thing is it, it's difficult to know who to kind of blame because it, it feels like you should be. it should be the manager's responsibility to make sure of the game management. And I think it is, but then you hear Solskjaer come out after the game and talk about, he, he, he speaks, he says the right thing. He says, this is what we want to do. We should have controlled possession. We shouldn't have given the ball away. But if it, it's his responsibility to make sure that does happen on the pitch. And it, it's probably yeah. one of his bigger weaknesses as a manager. On the other hand, you then need your leaders on the pitch because you can't all you can't talk to every player on the pitch. You need your leaders in the side to communicate that and to make sure that that is happening. Maguire is captain. Bruno Fernandes was still on the pitch. It didn't happen. Um, I, I think. And, I think for me the the sort of blame on players versus the coach. I think it's fair to to blame both. But at a certain point, I think you have to look at the, the fact that this isn't an isolated incident. You know, this is not the first time that we've seen not only us concede late goals, but just see out games in yeah. not a very good manner. Like So as we've kind of mentioned this season, so we've won so many games by one goal, but that's not actually because we've been seeing games out really well. Like so many of these 1-0 wins, 2-1 wins, 3-2 wins, you look, go back and, th- and think about them. We've been biting our fingernails until the last second. You know, look at Aston yeah. Villa sticks out in my mind of Bailly's last second block. can think of so many games where we were really hanging on at the end. And so I think it's fair enough to say the players have to take responsibility and they do. But it is also, a, this, this is a pattern now that we aren't good at closing out games. And I think at the end of the day, that comes back to the coach and he, he can say all the right things. He might be saying the right things on the training pitch, but it's a as a coach, it's your responsibility to not just say the right things, but figure out a way to actually imprint yeah. that on players' minds so that when they are in a pressure situation with fatigued minds after 90 minutes of football, they are actually implementing that and it's not just sort of empty yeah. words on the training pitch. Again, it, 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 it is on both though, because you look at at that sort of the, the build up to the to the goal, and we can talk about the defending, and I'm sure we will. Maguire didn't cover himself in glory, playing everyone on side, but do you look at the the build up to that? We have a free kick on the edge of our own box that we we take at about 93 minutes and 55 seconds when there was four yeah. minutes of added time. I mean, why on earth is De Gea kicking that straight down the middle of the field? That should be going out to the sideline. If it goes out for a throw, great. That's seconds that Everton have to take getting the ball back in play. Even if they don't, they're they're stuck in the corner where we can compact the pitch. As it is, we give it to them straight down the spine of the pitch. They play it out to uh, Richarlison on the left. And then from there, it's 
they it only took what three or four seconds yeah, to start launching. I think that that's attack. what's so frustrating about it. A, a lot of things had to had to happen, but there's just easy things that that we just for whatever reason are not putting yeah. into practice at the uh, right moment. And it, it just wasn't an utterly needless goal to concede. As well, I mean, you could probably say the same for the two they scored at the start of the second half, but particularly the third was so needless. And yeah, the, the examples we give are, are absolutely right. Um, David De Gea, too often now, mistakes, too often. And one of our patrons, Dave Shevlin, asks, uh, which is meant for the bonus Q&A, but we'll answer it here. He says, is De Gea more of a problem than a powerful asset now? Um and De Gea's had an all right couple of months and much like, I mean, interestingly, much like Maguire had settled down until this game. Um, it, it, it is an interesting one and it, it's difficult. And it, it, we said at the start of the season, it takes a huge call. But if you think back in summer, we were deciding whether we wanted De Gea to be United's first choice goalkeeper anymore. Well, to, to stop those questions from being answered, he had to not make mistakes this season. And he has. And it's the kind of thing that should have been considered over the last three, four years with United's statistical analysis, noticing where De Gea has declined and planning for his replacement, even though he still can be great and still is great at times. Um, and I guess it's, it is the De Gea-Henderson comparison because I can't see United going out and buying a goalkeeper. Um, Henderson is on much lower wages. He's probably, I think he's a better communicator. He's probably better at set pieces but I think De Gea is a much better distributor than Henderson. There's, there'll be more to it than that, but I'm not a keeper and I can't analyse keepers as well as um, goalkeepers themselves can. But it's, it, yeah, it, it's a really sticky one. I'm not sure Henderson is is 100% the perfect replacement, but if you're not going to give him his chance now, then when are you? Yeah, I, I think De is, I think it's, it's an interesting one because we haven't really talked about De Gea as no one has really for most of the season, which usually yeah. for goalkeepers is a good sign. And it's fair, he's not really made any mistakes. But I think what's slightly different to most seasons is that he also hasn't really made that many great saves. And I know that's maybe a, a slightly unrealistic standard to compare him to, but I think with, without an obvious replacement, say, for example, as when we had Romero as number two, Going back to Victor Victor Valdez as number two, remember when he was around, you know, that when there isn't an obvious replacement, you can sort of get away with not having great performances and just being mistake free. And that's enough to really not have any conversation about your place in the team. When we do yeah. have a replacement in Dean Henderson, who, with the exception of one mistake against Sheffield United, has done very well when he's played and looks like a future Man United goalkeeper. I don't actually think that just being okay and not making mistakes is enough anymore for De Gea to justify him being in the team without any thought of replacing him with with Henderson. You know, I don't yeah. think De Gea has, has really made any particularly wonderful saves this season. And again, that, that might seem harsh, but we have a ready, ready-made replacement in Dean Henderson on the bench. I said at the yeah. start of the season, that I didn't see the point in, in bringing Henderson back just for him to sit on the bench. I think at, at this point, we're damaging. This is to me. This is a bit of a lose lose situation for everyone because United are in a position where we're having to choose between a club legend in David de Gea and a young player in Dean Henderson, which is not an easy choice to make. But more to the point, we're also, I think, damaging our future to some degree because Dean Henderson. I think we can all agree within probably the next two years at the most 
will be United's number one goalkeeper. So why not just start that future now? It's not as if he's not good enough to play at this point. And we're also damaging Dean Henderson himself, his chance to have played in the Euros this summer. You know, all those things. I just think we're... It doesn't make much sense to me to have Dean Henderson sit on the bench and watch De Gea week in, week out, unless De Gea is being spectacular. And I don't think he is. Yeah, I agree. And you say there's, there's no, there hasn't been any spectacular moments, which we've become so used to. Um, and it's the first time in his career that his, he's got the worst save percentage in his career, according to football reference. It's also the first time in his career that his post-shot expected goals, which is a slightly complicated stat, but it is negative. Basically, positive indicates luck or an above-average ability, and De Gea's always had that. And negative suggests the opposite, and it's the first time he's in, in negative, which means he's basically conceding more goals than you would expect him to. Pretty uh, sure he's got the second lowest shot save percentage in the Premier League as well, behind only Rui Patricio. Yeah. So it, it's, it's something to continue looking out for, but Henderson's going to start against West Ham on Tuesday. He's United's Cup goalkeeper and it would probably be an easy way to change the change the thing. But I mean, historically changing goalkeepers at any club is, is, has always been a really difficult task. When's it, the right month to do it? Who's the right replacement? It, yeah, it's always messy. Um, and I could, But th- this is a defence who has conceded 30 goals in 23 games. Um, so it's not just set pieces. It, it, there's so much to this defence that needs to improve. Uh, is changing the goalkeeper going to help or is it going to make things worse? It's one of the big decisions of Solskjaer's time as United manager. But in terms of the, the defence as a whole, we're outscoring the whole league. Our attacking play, as we've said, against Everton was fantastic, but outscoring the whole league. But you have to go to the bottom half of the table to find a team who have conceded as many goals as Manchester United. Arsenal, who are 10th, have conceded seven fewer goals than us. Is it just that the centre-backs don't complement each other? I mean, I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's the whole the whole story, no. I think, honestly, what we're dealing with here is a combination of n- below-par defenders, but also... A, a team that I just don't think defends well as a collective. I, I think really, if, if you look through our team, the only player that you would say naturally is a great defender is probably Aaron Wambasaka. And even then, he's a great defender as a, as a one-on-one defender, but maybe not positionally. I, I think just every week you see, as a, as a collective unit, we, we just don't know how to defend. Even against Everton, when in the first half, they they barely had a sniff. But even right at the end of the half, Calvert-Lewin almost got in because he was being played on side. There was another point yeah. earlier in the half where I can't actually remember what, what ended up happening, but um, Calvert-Lewin was played on side. This is quite early in the game. Calvert-Lewin was played on side from a long ball because Wan-Bissaka is about five yards deeper than everyone else. Again, for, for Everton's third goal, Maguire drops too deep at the free kick, plays everyone on side. Just every week there are moments like this. And to me... Sure, there's, there's individual mistakes and that happens in a defence. But the bigger thing for me is just that as a as a unit, we don't seem to understand how to defend. And that goes down to the very basics, just how to shift across the pitch, how to, yeah, how to mark things, runs, how to pass players that you're marking to someone else when they make a run. Yeah, I don't know whether it's communication that's lacking, the players are lacking. It's probably a combination of everything and that we're not doing the, the right work on the training pitch. But I think it's a big concern that we aren't, we aren't improving. Yeah, and it, it brings to mind again 
does Solskjaer need to bring in a, a defensive specialist coach to sort that part of the team out? Um, because Carrick is not, McKenna is not, Phelan's not, uh, and Darren Fletcher isn't either. Um, and it, I mean, yeah, the first half of the Everton game, we we played really well. But that, yeah, we, we were letting Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison through and it seemed like Lindelof and Maguire were not suited to play against those two strikers who are tall and quick and powerful um, and, and have good movement and can can dribble well as well. Um, and yeah, it was the, the, the lack of pace. They, they don't, they don't cover up each other's weaknesses. They, they highlight them even more, but it is the simple things. It's, I mean, to be fair, this is normally, um, Wan-Bissaka rather than Maguire. Maguire was for the, the third goal, played people on side. Yeah, he shouldn't be doing that. Uh, especially as the, as the captain and the leader of that back line, he should be the one always on point. But Wan-Bissaka's so often that, can see the line and yet still manages to play people on side. And it's, it, it, it's, it happens far too often and it's such an easy thing to correct. Um, obviously it requires good concentration and, and practice and training, but it's an obvious issue. And so it should be something that, that is fairly simple to correct. And if not, then you have to make adjustments. Um, and yeah, you're right. It, it, those simple things are so frustrating. Um, and it, I'm, it's hard to see what the the f- overall fix is, but Lindelof Maguire is not a partnership that will win you a title. And I think we've always said that and always thought that. And they don't they don't suit each other. No, they don't. And I think you can see that very clearly when they play. I think it's it's tough because everything ultimately falls onto the centre backs when the defence isn't playing particularly well. That's just sort of how the nature of watching football is. And you notice it very often. I mean, the the first goal, Everton's first goal is a great example of this, that both Maguire and Lindelof are just so passive when that passage of play is happening. Maguire tracking the run doesn't get back goal side of, of Calvert-Lewin quickly enough. They don't and never really have complemented each other's weaknesses. But I also don't think it's just them. I think, you know, they aren't great together. And I don't think that they ever have been really Maguire and Bailly makes a lot more sense to me as a partnership of two players that would complement each other. But I don't think it is just the centre-backs and I think it's it's harsh to to focus on just them. I know that that's nece- like just how we, we normally focus on things when defences are playing badly, we focus on the centre-backs. But it's so much more than that. You know, the amount of times that we saw Scott McTominay having to track back to the right-back position against Everton in the first half because... Uh, Hamas Rodriguez or Richarlison or or Andre Gomez or Ducore were were sort of making runs down there. The amount of times that Fred gets dragged out of position, Wambasaka, and even Shaw, as great as he's been defensively, still isn't great. You know, I, I think the biggest thing that I that I took away from this: look at Everton's second goal that Hamas scores, and look at Sheffield United's second goal that Oli Burke yeah. scores last week. They're almost carbon copies of each other, and each time they have about five yards of space in our own penalty box. And yeah. that is down to the centre-backs not organising well enough, but that isn't their responsibility. That's down to the midfield as well. And again, it's this whole collective unit that we're just not defending properly. I've just watched Man City play Liverpool. We're recording this about two hours after the game ended. And you watch Man City defend, and, and sure, they have great centre-backs. You know, Stones and Diaz are, are, have been brilliant recently, but it's not just them. As a collective, they are. everyone understands their role so, so well. 
And whether yeah. it's pressing from the front, whether it's when they drop a little bit deeper and harry the ball once it comes into their own half, whatever it is they're doing, as a collective unit, it is so good and they cover for each other so well. And we we just don't have that. That to me is is the biggest thing. And if we had, you know, Van Dijk and Diaz at centre back, I'm sure we would concede a few less goals. But actually, I don't think it would be improving us as a collective that much because just the we have no system, we have no togetherness when we defend. Yeah. Right, we need to move on. Uh, a couple of interesting things to note. Pogba's influence. Um, first 38 minutes before Pogba went off, United had 0.75 expected goals. Everton had none. And then afterwards, United had 0.97, whereas Everton had 1.56. It was He was playing well, and I think that was a maybe an underrated blow to our game. Um, and, and moving on to yeah. the, the Southampton game. We, we haven't really got time to give it justice, um, to be honest. But if we cast our minds back to the Sheffield United game, that defeat to them was about, I think, I feel like arrogance and complacency. And this was the exact opposite. We capitalised on the circumstances, the very favourable circumstances, and did so in, in emphatic fashion. Uh, it was It was just an absolute pleasure to watch. It really was. It really was. I haven't been, I haven't been as angry as I was after the Everton game in a long time, but I also haven't been as happy as I was after the Southampton game because of football in a long time. We said a couple of weeks ago before the Sheffield United game that we wanted to see United batter someone and it it really did happen in a big, big yeah. way. It wasn't, obviously the, the situation was unique in that Southampton aren't a team built to to sit back and they have a lot of injuries and then they got the red card after 90 seconds. But I think I, I, I tweeted this in the, uh, about 10 minutes into the game, you could easily, easily see United sides of the past being in that situation and sort of huffing and puffing and sputtering to a nil, nil or scraping a one nil win. And there's absolutely none yeah, of it. Yeah, it's true. No, nothing of the sort, you know, as soon as that first goal went in, it just felt like the floodgates opened. Well, it actually felt, once the sending off happened, five minutes after that, we still hadn't scored. But you could all, you could kind of sense it immediately. Yeah. It felt from really very did. early on as if we were going to batter them. And it felt completely relaxed. And then the first goal, the second, the third, the fourth, and um, probably should have had a fifth before before half time, but it, it just felt kind of inevitable from before the first goal and particularly after it. And that, that was what made it was it the so intensity, easy. I think, yeah. and how quickly we were moving the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, honestly, I've got to say it probably felt as I was watching it, especially the first half, this is probably the closest I've ever felt watching Man United as it is to watching Man City and their pomp under Guardiola against teams that sit back. Because in those games you do, even if it's nil-nil, you feel a sense of inevitability about City eventually scoring. And it comes to the fact that they just feel, sometimes when I watch City play, I feel like they think and move at a completely different speed to their opposition. And that probably for the first time ever watching United, I felt that, that just the intensity, the way we were moving the ball was just a completely different level to what it is normally. And it, it was brilliant, seriously brilliant to watch. Yeah. And you, I, th- I think what it was, it was that there was threat from everywhere in the team. Um, yeah. I mean, Maguire had, well, played a part in, in a poor defensive performance against Everton, but was like a number 10 at times against Southampton. 
<laughs> and I, he really was. He was just kind of playing on the edge of the box and, and feeding passes through, doing everything you, you kind of dream of your centre-backs doing. And it, I mean, perhaps it shows what he could contribute if he had a defence midfielder behind him, who, who well, who covered behind him when he went forward. I don't think we have that at the moment. I, I basically not Fred and McTominay and maybe Matic, but someone better than Matic and, and younger and quicker. And I mean, that that was Maguire, the fullbacks, um, like at Arsenal, at the centre of absolutely everything. No United player had more shot or goal-creating actions than Luke Shaw in that game. And he only played the first half. Um, it, it, it was brilliant from from Shaw and Wambasaka. And I mean... Short of Wambasaka to to start things off, a variety of deliveries, a, a real variety in the chances that United created, and I think that was what was so nice about it. you. Had chances coming through the middle from the fullbacks, from your centre backs, uh, nice dribbling play, and, and and a word for for Mason Greenwood as well, who I think is is in his probably best, uh, not goal scoring form, but he's he's improved so much in his involvement in build up. I think he's moving between he's moving between the right and the left to support the attacks. Um, it means we're still too reliant on the left wing, but it's a, a positive of, of sorts. He's coming inside and, and kind of waiting to feed the runners in the box and having a real influence on games. Now I thought he was excellent against Everton, but yeah, I mean, it was the variety of threat against Southampton. It was so nice and, and proves that we can have a threat from anywhere yep. on the pitch. It just, it's a matter of getting it all oiled up, right? Yeah, this is without doubt Greenwood's best two performances for me of the season. So it was very, very good. Yeah, the Southampton game really was... I think a fine example of how you maximise the attacking output of every single person on on the team. Basically, it's very rare that you f- you feel that almost every single player on the pitch could give you a threat, and that is what it felt like at times. Never seen Wan Bissaka be so dangerous getting forward. Some of the positions he was taken up was brilliant. And I think it shows in in the amount of different people that scored. This wasn't just you know sometimes you see sort of five six nil wins. And it's just one or two people getting all of the, the goals and assists. And I think you can see from the fact that it was so spread around, just the fact that we had threat coming from everywhere. And again, the, the situation is unique. We were fortunate that we were playing a Southampton team in bad form with injuries and then got a sending off. But as I say, in the, in the past, you could imagine United teams not taking advantage of that properly. Yeah. And sort of taking their foot off the gas, and and the fact that we didn't, the fact the intensity stayed like that, and we were so ruthless, it was a joy to watch. Yeah. And it, it was an advert for Olegan Solskjaer, wasn't it? Because th- this is not something that Mourinho, Van Gaal, Moyes, United side would have done. Um, a, a real advert for Solskjaer, and I, th- I think it's worth mentioning the mentality of the team, not just the quality performance, but the. The ruthlessness to go and and I remember after after Leicester beat Southampton nine nil, they realised the record was on not the record was on but like a huge thing was on at half time and and made sure and said to each other to go out and make sure it happened and that it was the same when when United did it it was I mean Scott McTominay after Dan James sticks in the ninth is asking him to get the ball back to try and get ten and that is that is exactly how it should be. Um, there, there, there should be no mercy in these situations, but the g- games we scored four or more goals in, there's been eight under Solskjaer and there's been three this season alone. And in the Mourinho, Van Gaal and Moyes era, five years, there was only two. Um, so yeah, just an advert for Solskjaer, but also uh, this week, another advert for Edison Cavani and Marcus Rashford. This was without a doubt the whole week, actually, I think an advert for Edison Cavani 
I, don't, I think it is also an advert for Astrid, but I don't think that one was in a, any doubt anyway. Cavani's been brilliant. He really has. And I think these two performances were probably the best that he's had when starting against Southampton and Everton. I think there's been a case to be made that in the past, he's been better coming off the bench and hasn't quite offered us the same threat when he started as he has done when he's been brought on during the game. But these were two brilliant performances. Finally gets his old Trafford goal, which he's deserved for a long time. But I I mean, the difference in our team at the moment, and this this isn't designed to say that Martial doesn't offer us anything, but the difference in our team at the moment when we have Cavani playing as our number nine compared to Martial is is huge. It really is because it offers us a completely different type of threat, the way he's able to drop deep and link up the play and offer us an option when we have the ball, whether it's Maguire, Lindelof, Fred, Tomane, Pogba, Matic, whoever it is. Because Fernandez is perfectly suited to that role of when the striker comes deep, he makes the run beyond and becomes effectively like a striker at times. He does that anyway when Martial's in on the pitch. But the problem is when we have Martial is that we often end up with almost two strikers at times because Fernandez wants to push up so yeah. far. And Martial also wants to push up on, onto the last shoulder without dropping deep. And so it's quite difficult for us to shift the ball inside off and we end up just recycling it through the wings and then back into the two holding midfielders. But Cavani offers us that central point around which everyone else can operate. And then... The finishing, I mean, the two headers for the goals were were brilliant, especially that header against Southampton. That was yeah. not the easiest of headers and it was a great header into the yeah. corner. He's been brilliant. He really, I, You really can't understate the impact that he's had on this team. And I, th- I think at this point he's entrenched as undoubtedly our starting striker. Yeah. I mean, and that, that that's only become certain in the last couple of weeks. And yeah, a, a brilliant signing. Um, I think we thought he'd be a, a good signing, but not a brilliant one. And so far, brilliant. Uh the only other thing I'll say, um, we're going to move on to youth load and women's roundup. Is just, just again worth reiterating how sad it is that fans weren't there to watch that game against Southampton, because it, yeah. it would have been. I, I mean, that's just that's kind of a once in a lifetime thing to watch. Not for, I mean, actually not for United fans because those who are old enough might have seen us against Ipswich in. Um, in the 90s but um, for most people a once in a lifetime opportunity to see your team score nine goals at the very top but uh, so that's a shame but the nine goals at Old Trafford there were 10 um, in the under 23s game this week so let's go to our youth loan and women's roundup. then we'll be previewing games against West Ham and West Brom after a nine goal thriller against Liverpool last week in which Joe Hugo scored four and Ahmad Diallo two United's under 23s went even further this time against Blackburn with a 10 goal stormer of a game. United came from behind on three occasions, trailing 4-2 just after half-time. It was mainly down to defensive errors in an injury hit backline, but attacking play of some serious, serious quality meant United came back to win 6-4. Shola Shortire scored three, Ahmad Diallo assisting all three of those goals before he got one himself. Hugo scored another and Hannibal United's first. Those four players are in some incredible form. Hannibal is playing out on the left at the moment, allowing Shortire to play at number 10. Both of those are flourishing. Hannibal gets a bit more space and influences the game so much, pinging passes across the pitch, cutting inside and winning fouls. 
He's been nicknamed the Grealish of Premier League 2. He was fouled 10 or 12 times on Saturday lunchtime. Shoulder Shortire, meanwhile, is an efficient player. He had three chances and scored them all, uh, a header and two tap-ins. His movement is great. Diallo is doing really well. He can't train with the under-23s because he's in the first-team bubble, but still already seems to have a great relationship with his teammates, showing good intelligence. And if his two-goal display against Liverpool showed how he plays with pace, doing everything quickly, this showed a bit more composure. He's a mature player, good awareness of what's around him, and very unselfish, a very exciting player to watch. And a nod towards Harvey Neville as well, who was excellent in the second half in that 6-4 win. The under-18s didn't play this weekend, but their number 10, Isaac Hansen-Aaron, might be going on loan back to Tromso. He's in Norway now, um, has been since Christmas, and it basically makes sense due to coronavirus. We'll see if that is completed sometime soon. In loan news, Ethan Laird played 90 minutes in a 2-2 draw for MK Dons. His manager, Russell Martin, said this of him. Ethan was brilliant. The difference between him in his first game and today is miles apart. James Garner, meanwhile, played 90 minutes in a 3-0 win for Nottingham Forest, whose fans have been delighted with his first two appearances both of them man of the match performances injury hit Man United women suffered a shock 2-0 defeat to Reading this weekend they'll try and bounce back when they play City away on Friday night Jack very quickly we haven't got much time West Ham in the cup West Brom away there's going to be some rotation we expect Henderson will start in goal against West Ham on Tuesday a good West Ham team we'll see if Thomas Suchek is uh his red card appeal is successful. I don't think he should have been sent off. I kind of, from a United point of view, I hope it, it stays from a personal view. I, I don't, I, I hope he gets it rescinded because he shouldn't have been sent off. If he does get it rescinded, I expect him to score against us. I mean, it's set up for a Thomas Suchek goal from a Thomas, from an Aaron Creswell uh, corner pretty much, isn't it? We are, we're weak from, from set pieces. West Ham are, yeah. are unbelievably good. Suchek's record of, of scoring is honestly ridiculous for a player to be playing as deep as he regularly does and to be scoring this many goals is it, quite something it's going to be a tough game I, I'm intrigued to see how the two teams line up this is you know a midweek game in the middle of a very busy period of the season we go back to the Europa League the week after I believe against Sociedad so it, I'm I'm intrigued to see how strong a lineup we put out. And I think we will go pretty strong because Solskjaer, I think, really wants to win the FA Cup as we should be. But it will be intriguing to see if there's any amount of rotation yeah. at all. It wouldn't surprise me to see someone like Donny van der Beek maybe get a start. But I, I'm assuming that other than maybe one or two so, yeah. players will go very strong. It's going to be a tough game. West Ham are in, are in brilliant form. I think before the Fulham game, they'd only uh, they'd won seven of their last eight games, I'm pretty sure. So they're in great form, and I mean, it would it would just yeah. be awful, wouldn't it, for David Moyes of all people to to knock us out of the FA Cup? I know. I I was just thinking it. It would be such a dampener as well, because I think the the City League Cup defeat was was, was gutting to be fair, but in and and we've had these moments like against Everton, um, missed opportunities against Arsenal and and Liverpool, but in general, the last few months have yeah. been <laughs> have been very good and very enjoyable. I feel like going out of the FA Cup would be a, a real, real blow. Um, Especially given that we've just fallen behind to sit even further as well. And the title race, look, not that I don't think exactly, many of us yeah, really thought yeah. we were ever going to win the title, but even sort of the glean of being in a serious title race is yeah. kind of worn off. This would be a, a massive kick yeah. in the teeth. Yeah, exactly. Um, we'll be speaking to you after the West Brom game. Uh, away from home to who are, have been terrible defensively since Sam Allardyce came in. I think he's conceded more goals than anyone 
any other Premier League manager in their first 10 games uh, at a new club. Um, I mean, even Jose Mourinho's Tottenham scored against them. So that's when you know things, are, know. things are getting bad. Which makes you think we, we should, surely. But... Again, another a team with some some proper threats as well. Matis Pereira it will uh, will cause some fear. Um, Actually, I've yeah, got to say it's, it's difficult just, to predict. Isn't this it? is a bit off topic, but um, watching Spurs the last few weeks has, has really just made me so thankful for everything that we have at Man United now. No matter how <laughs> how annoyed I was after the Everton game, I mean, just watching watching Spurs go to the exact same thing that we did under Mourinho, just how awful it is watching that shit yeah. week after week after week is it makes you so thankful for what we have in, in Solskjaer now yeah right we need to wrap things up we're going to go to our patron Q&A um, we've got some interesting questions one on uh, race distribution social media from Mod Nile one from Christopher about what our, star, our strongest starting eleven is um, and one from Dave about um, our favourite goal from the Southampton game which I need to to ponder um, over the next couple of minutes but uh, for the rest of you if you want to sign up to, and listen to that extra Q&A every week you can do go to our Twitter at UTD Weekly Pod that's P-O-D at the end there and you can find out information as to how otherwise for more from Jack throughout the week you can find him on Twitter at at UTD Tate T-A-I-T and you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 and as I say the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod that's P-O-D at the end there have a great week everyone um, we'll speak to you next weekend Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.